Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. On Friday, Premier Ford announced some big changes to his cabinet, with some long-standing names shuffled out and one very familiar name shuffled back in. We'll dig into all the details. Plus, we get to your comments and questions a week after the government went for the nuclear notwithstanding option. It's Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021, so let's get to it. Premier Doug Ford's long-awaited cabinet shuffle finally happened last Friday afternoon. Before we get into the details of who's in and who's out, let me just ask you, JMM, this overarching question. Cabinet shuffles one year before an election, well, we all know the story. They're supposed to refresh governments. Governments often drop older, long-standing members with safer seats for younger, more diverse members with seats that aren't necessarily a slam dunk to win next time out. And that's happened here. But... This was a virtual cabinet shuffle. No hour-long live TV coverage, followed by another hour of scrums with new ministers. It was all on Zoom. How much more difficult, in your view, is it to refresh the brand without all that coverage? You know, the Premier has previously had um, minor cabinet shuffles that happened without all of the the pomp and circumstance that we are used to seeing. Uh, Sometimes the announcement has been as simple as a press release. Uh, But, you know, since we are viewing everything about Queen's Park these days through the lens of the next provincial election, I think it's fair to say they probably would have preferred to at least have the option for the ceremony if they could have gotten it. Um, That said... If they're really feeling like uh, the need for a big ceremony for public consumption, uh, they still have plenty of options. Uh, you know, they could uh, prorogue the House anytime Doug Ford decides to, for example. And, you know, and that wouldn't actually be out of the ordinary for a government at this point in its uh, lifespan. That is true. OK, let's just go through some of the more notable developments of this shuffle, starting with the return of the former finance minister. Rod Phillips is back. I'm sure everyone well remembers him resigning from cabinet six months ago because of a trip he took to St. Bart's when everyone else was supposed to be confined to quarters and not traveling. Why do you think he's back in now? Well, you know how much I hate to be cynical about politics, uh, but the the (laughs) cynical view would be that Ford uh, needs to change his minister for long-term care and um, nobody else wanted the job. Uh, I don't think that's it, or at least I don't think that's everything. Uh, The premier clearly wants him back in cabinet. And certainly, I think other outlets, the Toronto Star notably, have reported that, you know, the premier felt that Phillips's absence around the cabinet table uh, during the, the pretty disastrous spring uh, that the government had, uh, the premier felt that, you know, he might have been better served if Phillips had been there at the cabinet table. Um, You know, I think it's an exaggeration to say that, you know, all of their drama in the spring could have been prevented if only Rod Phillips had been there. Uh, But, you know, I mean, events speak for themselves here. The premier clearly wants Phillips back, uh, you know, wants him as a minister, wants to hear his voice uh, around the cabinet table. And, uh, you know, even handing him the long-term care portfolio is not, um, <laughs> I think in our newsletter this week, you, you, you use the phrase poison chalice. It's it's not that exactly, uh, but it, it is, um, it's going to be a challenge for him, but it's also the kind of thing that, you know, it, it could help him earn back some credibility. 
Yes, I think when I used the expression poison chalice, it was only to say it's not exactly a poison yes. chalice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but it's but, a lovely phrase. You know, <laughs> it's a nice phrase. And the fact is, you know, one hopes, come on, one hopes that the worst of the bad news related to long-term care is now over with and behind the government and the province. And that from this stage forward, it's about rebuilding and putting into place recommendations that have been on the books for a very long time. And, you know, to the extent that that needs doing immediately, maybe Phillips is the guy to get it done. That's clearly their hope. Now, to the extent that there weren't any surprises in this shuffle, it may be that the biggest names didn't get moved at all. Bethlen Falvey, still the treasurer. Elliot, still the health minister. Lecce, still the education minister. Jones, still the solicitor general. Mulrooney, still in transportation. Any theories as to why the premier didn't move any of them? It's an interesting question, right? Because all of them have had, you know, various controversies in their time as ministers because, you know, it's not possible to to be a minister of the crown for very long before some controversy uh, crops up. Uh, But my sense of this is that, you know, they've all been team players from the perspective of the premier's office. And uh, some of them also uh, represent GTA ridings that the Tories uh, still need to defend in the next election. Uh, But I did write something for TVO.org last week, uh, arguing that, you know, as much as cabinet shuffles are sort of by definition, they are about the changes that we see. You know, the fact that these big names haven't changed uh, tells you that the government is is going to be showing a lot of continuity over the next year. And and one additional name I will uh, drop here who didn't change is the um, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark. Uh, he has been really the public face of the government's use of ministerial zoning orders. That's been you know a very controversial policy, and he is staying put, uh, which suggests that the government is not feeling like they want to back down on this file. Right now, I remember, and again. Mr. McGrath, we're going way back in the day now. I do remember asking Premier Bill Davis, uh, what is the worst part of your job? And Mr. Davis's answer was dropping people from cabinet. He just hated doing that because, you know, he understood he was essentially telling MPPs, your career as you knew it is over. And I I raised that story because Premier Ford did drop five MPPs, some of them real veterans, Bill Walker, Jeff Urick, Ernie Hardiman, Lori Scott, and John Yakabuski. If you can imagine this, Yakabuski's been an MPP for almost 20 years. His father was an MPP in Bill Davis's government. Uh, Lori Scott, her father, was, I think, for 24 years an MP federally. So she's another second generation, also dropped from cabinet. Uh, any speculation on why they may have been dropped, those five? You know, the government, or rather I should say the PC party, is thinking about uh, the seats that it needs to defend in the next election. Uh, you know, they, they've got a pretty sizable majority in the House. They probably don't have that many areas where they can, you know, expand the seats that they hold. It's probably one or two seats they're looking at, but uh, primarily, like any government, they're going to be playing defense in the next election. And you don't defend your safe ridings, and these are five incredibly safe Tory ridings. Uh, you mentioned Laurie Scott. You know, Laurie Scott was the MPP who stepped aside for John Tory back in 2009. Uh, John Tory had failed to win a seat in the legislature. She stepped aside uh, so that Tory could sort of take a shot at winning back a seat and that the, the PC party would have a leader in the legislature. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you only do in a riding that is supposed to be, you know, a shoe-in, basically. Um, of course, the 2009 by-election was a bit of a surprise there. John Tory did not end up winning uh, that race and uh, resigned as PC leader not long after that. Um, so uh, apologies for the history digression, but, you know, my, my point here is that uh, these are 
very safe, uh, largely rural ridings that the party is not really worried about losing in the next election. And so uh, they are, are not really playing defense there. A history digression. That's usually my play, McGrath, not yours. <laughs> anyway, no, all good points. Now, having said all that, there are several new names in cabinet. I'm thinking of Stan Cho from Willowdale, Jane McKenna from Burlington, Parm Gill from Milton, Nina Tangri from Mississauga Streetsville, Khalid Rashid, Mississauga East Cooksville, Dave Pacini from Northumberland, Peterborough South. Now, as you look at all those new names, is there a theme that runs through all of that? Uh, I mean, sort of the the photographic negative of uh, the MPPs who were dropped from cabinet. These are GTA ridings primarily, uh, you know, I think all of them were represented by uh, liberals before 2018. Uh, the PC party obviously wants to give the MPPs in those ridings a bit more prominence in the year before an election. Uh, and, you know, it also raises the profile of uh, some of the PC caucuses, more diverse faces, younger faces. Um, in our newsletter this week, I'm going to reference it yet again, um, you noted uh, the rise of Prabhmeet Sarkaria, the MPP for Brampton South, uh, who he was already already in cabinet, but he's now been elevated to the post of uh, president of the Treasury Board, which uh, had been uh, held by the finance minister uh, who's wearing two hats there. Um, an incredibly important post, a very fast rise for a young MPP, and you know another example of uh, the party really putting its um, younger, more diverse faces forward in cabinet. Uh, you know, a bit of a cliche to say that Ontario elections are, are won and lost in the GTA, but you know, this cabinet shuffle really, really proves the point. It does. And Mr. Sarkaria, we should say 32 years old, one of the most important jobs in cabinet, the first ever turban wearing sick in a provincial cabinet in Ontario history, and uh, perhaps uh, equally as important, um, a guy who won his riding by 2,700 votes in Brampton in the last election. And the NDP have nominated a star candidate in Andrea Barnett to run in the, in the next election in Brampton South. And as a result, I guess they wanted to give Mr. Sarkaria a higher profile position uh, to ensure that uh, he got a little extra energy in him for the next election campaign. One last note on the shuffle, Mary Lee Fullerton, who was the long-term care minister, of course, in the last cabinet, in some respects, responsible for the oldest citizens in the province. She now moves to children, community and social services and is now responsible for some of the youngest citizens in our province. What do you infer from that move? You know, the government insists that uh, this is not a demotion, just as they insist that none of the other <laughs> moves were demotions. Um, and even though long-term care has been the uh, center of a real, you know, uh, hurricane of tragedy uh, in COVID-19, uh, you know, she was in the ministry when she needed Health Minister Christine Elliott's permission really to do anything because it it all had to be coordinated with the Ministry of Health. Uh, she is now in charge of her own Ministry of Children and Social Services, uh, which has you know a budget of almost eighteen billion dollars. So um, she she might have a bit more uh, freedom of action. Uh, I, I would say that you know this is the last full fiscal year this government is going to get before the next election and the budgets have all been set. Uh, you know, the budget was passed back in the spring. So I'm not sure how much uh, freedom of movement any of these ministers is, is going to have. Uh, but, you know, you're still a cabinet minister. You still have uh, a great deal of power and importance. And uh, we will see what uh, Minister Fullerton and you know all of these ministers uh, will be able to do next. Indeed.
Okay, that's the look at the Cabotage Shuffle. Let's move on. And JMM, you know that on this podcast in the past, I sometimes get a little irritated <laughs> when I see truly cynical messaging from political parties. They all do it. But we got another example of it this past week from the Progressive Conservative Party. Above Doug Ford's signature, the premier says in an e-blast to Tory supporters, quote, I want to stay connected with the priorities most important to our key supporters. Take our supporter poll here. So you click on the link and here come the questions. And remember, this has been pitched to recipients as a poll. Number one, are you worried about how inflation and interest rate hikes might hit your pocketbook? Very concerned, somewhat concerned, not concerned. <laughs> That's a pretty neutral question. So, OK, fine, fine. Question two, do you agree with the liberals increasing taxes at a time when small businesses can least afford it? Yes, no, or you're not sure. Now, Mr. McGrath, you've seen the odd poll question in your day. What do you notice about that one? Uh, no reputable pollster and frankly, few enough of the disreputable ones <laughs> would allow <laughs> such a, um, a a slanted question. You know, this is, a, I think you'd fairly call it a push poll. Uh, have the federal liberals actually increased taxes on small, small businesses? I mean, you can argue about the carbon tax, yes or no, but no. I mean, really, this is not uh, a fair question. It is... Um, much more of an attempt to to push the idea of tax increases rather than seek a rather than you know neutrally seek an informed opinion <laughs> bingo okay here comes question three do you agree with hiring teachers based on merit in ontario schools and they offer three options again yes no or unsure and again a slanted question basically taking aim at teacher unions which prefer seniority over merit they feel merit is too subjective a criterion so that's that. Okay, and here comes number four. Do you think we should be investing in long-term care beds in Ontario? That's question four. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine who would answer no after, you know, the year plus that we've had in COVID-19? <laughs> I, I, exactly. I mean, who would say no, despite the fact that 80% of the people who've just died in our COVID-19 pandemic uh, have been people in long-term care. No, we should not be investing in any long-term care beds in this province. No, I don't think so. Uh, all right. At number five, here's question five. Are you worried about Justin Trudeau's internet censorship bill C-10? Again, a slanted question, knowing that the use of Trudeau's name will make PC supporters see red. And finally, two similar questions. Who do you feel is best placed to lead Ontario after the 2022 election? And who do you believe is best suited to get Ontario's economy back on track? And then they offer the names of the four main leaders, Stephen Del Duca, Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, or Mike Schreiner. In that order, incidentally. And no party names either, just the leaders' names. Now, you're a pretty good mind reader, JMM. <laughs> Why am I so troubled by this so-called poll? Well, first of all, I mean, to call it a poll is uh, beyond charitable. It's misleading. Um, you know, this is not an attempt to uh, discover public opinion. This is a, a push poll designed to create opinions. And, you know, the Tories are, are going to get the results of these questions. And then, you know, maybe they'll raise them in question period in the fall. Uh, maybe they'll use them in online advertising, whatever. But they're going to say, you know, we're building long-term care homes and 90% of people agree with us doing that. And, you know, this is just an email sent to PC party supporters. So when people, you know, respond to it saying they think Doug Ford is the choice to, to lead the next province, you know, it's just an incredibly skewed result. Uh, it also makes me wonder, like, why is the PC party even bothering to, to collect this information? I mean, I get that the Tories are 
irritated about Justin Trudeau continuing to be prime minister. But as I've said before on this podcast, like whatever else happens next year, they are not running against Justin Trudeau. (laughs) He is not on the ballot in the next provincial election, to the best of my recollection. That is true. No, this is mischief making. Masquerading is a legitimate public opinion surveying. So we are merely... Putting that on the record, we are bringing that to our listeners' attention so that when you hear PC ministers using, you know, big inflated numbers about how popular the (laughs) premier is in the weeks ahead, you will know that these numbers are essentially bogus. Okay, there we go. Yes, not the first time we've had to warn our readers about the potential use of bogus numbers in politics. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Nor will it be the last. Uh, Okay, last week was a big one for the official opposition. The NDP kicked off. Their 2022 election campaign with a speech by leader Andrea Horvath at the party's provincial council, and they unveiled their first three campaign ads. These are relatively short spots. Uh, The leader, Andrea Horvath, basically doing a piece to camera on what she sees as the NDP's priorities. A premier who cares about you and your life. That's what matters to me. Okay, John Michael, anything jump out at you with these ads? You know, I think we've discussed this on the podcast before. I've certainly written about it at TVO.org. But, you know, I do think that the next election is not going to be as much about COVID as people might think, that all of the three parties are going to be less focused on talking about uh, the government's responsibility for COVID-19 and and the the, the management of the pandemic itself. And uh, instead, people will be talking about the uh, the post-pandemic world and who has the the most compelling vision for uh, an Ontario after the pandemic. And I think this uh, these ads that the NDP have unveiled uh, really fit in with that. Uh, I also I, I gotta say I'm I'm interested to see whether this um, uh, whether this works for the NDP. It's it's going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, Andrea Horvath has, has been leader for a long time for the NDP, and she uh, she's a different leader now than she was in 2011 or 2014 even. And so I watched those ads, and, and I thought I was seeing a, you know, a slightly different Andrea Horvath than I remember from, for example, the 2014 election. Um, and so, you know, I will be very interested to see what the response to these ads is. Yeah, she's certainly trying to portray herself, and we should remember this is her fourth general election that she'll be leading the NDP into. She's certainly trying to convey someone who is comfortable in her own skin, who's on your side, and that will be, of course, a big contrast between the government, which she will accuse of only being in it for themselves. So um, whether she can continue to make that connection with the electorate is obviously the open question that these ads are are going to be designed to, to deal with. The thing about Andrea Horvath, though, almost every election in the past, in fact, maybe every election in the past, she's gone into it as the most popular of all the party leaders, but has never won. And these ads may go some distance to keep her as the most popular leader on offer. Uh, whether they can take her past the finish line first remains to be seen. We shall see. Now, we got some good questions from social media this past week, so we're going to tackle those now. Here is one from somebody named Steph Psika, who was following up on a detail about the province's election finance laws, which the Ford government has now used the notwithstanding clause of the charter to amend. And Steph asks, can third parties subdivide to get around the spending limits. Thinking like this ad is brought to you by the Toronto chapter of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario or the Northern chapter of the Elementary Teachers of Ontario. Got an answer to that one, JMM? 
I mean, getting a question like this is like Christmas in June for me. I, I get to totally <laughs> geek out on this one. Um, it actually came up in the court case that um, you know led to the government using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, Justice Edward Morgan had a pretty clear answer to it, um, just to sort of give people the context and refresh their memory. You know, the Ford government had brought in uh, tighter spending limits for third parties uh, for 12 months before an election. Uh, a number of groups uh, critical of the Ford government, primarily teachers unions, uh, challenged those spending rules as a breach of their uh, charter rights to free expression. Uh, but there's more. Uh, the law also contained rules that forbid things like uh, splitting up third parties or combining or doing anything uh, that would seek to thwart the spending limits. So the applicants in this case also tried to argue that this was a breach of their charter rights, but this time they argued that it violated their rights to freedom of association. So basically they were saying that they should have the right to combine their efforts however they want to be uh, most effective in their advocacy. And here's where it gets interesting. Uh, our listeners no doubt remember that Justice Morgan found the spending limits in the government's election finance law was unconstitutional uh, because they violated the Charter's freedom of expression guarantees. But he also said that if the spending limits had been valid, he would have found the rules against circumventing those limits constitutional uh, based on Canadian legal precedents. Uh, so uh, because the spending limits themselves violated the charter, then the rules meant to help enforce them were null and void. So let's just boil this down a little bit more. The judge basically said that if you're going to make a law like this, limiting election spending, you can also make rules that make it harder to skirt around the law with creative accounting. And that would have been fine if the spending limits themselves had not violated the charter. Am I following that right? That's it exactly. Uh, of course, Morgan's decision is now moot uh, since the government has invoked the notwithstanding clause with new legislation. Uh, that means that the law is allowed to violate sections 2 and 7 through 15 of the Charter of Rights uh, for five years uh, unless it is repealed before then. Mm -hmm. Got it. So let's continue on because we now have a question for you. Uh, listener Margaret Boland asks, can you please clarify who this affects? Uh, do third parties just include unions and groups like the Ontario Medical Association, or does it also include commercial interests or corporate groups? Uh, Margaret continues, uh, I, for one, am a voter that does not appreciate this use of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, no politician should use it just to get their partisan interests bolstered. Okay, thanks for that one, Margaret. Now, we have come to call... The groups affected by the Election Finances Act, quote unquote, third parties, even though the law actually doesn't identify what first parties or second parties are. But here's the gist of it. Political parties are thought of as first parties. Candidates or constituency associations are thought of as second parties. So that means third parties are basically everybody else, all the so-called special interest groups, non-governmental organizations, unions, professional associations, corporations, even individuals who like to engage in political advertising. They're also thought of as third parties. In other words, not a political party, not a candidate, not a constituency association. So everybody else is a third party. And, and one last note on all of this, and I think this puts it really into perspective. The publication QP Briefing, they did an analysis of third party advertising and discovered that the vast majority of third party ads are funded by Ontario unions and that 93% of the spending with groups that spend more than $100,000 in the last election, they favored the NDP, either by directly championing the New Democrats or by bashing the PCs or incumbent liberals. So, JMM, does that tell you anything about why the PC government wanted to put its own election campaign expenses law back into effect? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, clearly uh, they were seeking to limit the spending of uh, groups uh, whose money would have almost certainly been used uh, against the Progressive Conservative Party um, by using the notwithstanding clause and uh, putting their preferred law back into effect. They are, you know, clearly kneecapping third party efforts to boost uh, the NDP and probably the liberals. You know, the the. Um, Tory government has talked about wanting to stop U.S.-style election finances. But, you know, this is a funny thing about this. Uh, in Ontario, it's labor unions that have been the biggest users of third-party spending. Uh, and in the U.S., when we talk about this kind of um, campaign campaign finance issues, we're usually talking about, you know, billion-dollar companies or hundred-billion-dollar companies or, you know, e- extremely wealthy individuals. Um, just uh, one of those little quirky differences. <laughs> Indeed, uh, and a significant quirky difference. And it just sort of reminds me that, um, and again, I I know I'm guilty of everything goes back to Bill Davis, but the fact (laughs) of the matter is, back in the middle 1970s, when election expenses did become a controversial issue at the time, um, Premier Davis decided to create a special committee in which he gave liberals, Tories, and New Democrats membership on the committee, and he basically said to all of them, you guys write new rules. Come to a unanimous consen- you know, consensus on what ought to be in place, and then we'll pass it. And it was a minority parliament, so they all had to agree, and they did. And they passed new election expenses um, uh, regulations, which made it much fairer for everybody. That is clearly not what is not going on here. This is clearly one party, which has a majority government, using its majority to eke out an advantage over the other parties at election time. It's legal. You can debate whether or not it's fair. It's certainly not the approach taken by Bill Davis in the mid-1970s, but there we go. I I had to laugh. The premier uh, said, uh, defending this new law, you know, we're going to have democratic elections in Ontario, uh, or or that might be a rough paraphrase of it. But when I saw that quote, I mean, I had to laugh because, of course, you know, Doug Ford and the PC party won a very large majority under the old rules of 2018 uh, and with, you know, substantial third party spending uh, that that tried to stop the Tories. Uh, And yet, you know, if one reads the the premier's statement, literally, 2018 was not a democratic election. (laughs) So it's yeah, it's all it's all fun. (laughs) Politics a funny business sometimes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other potential listeners find this podcast, and when you make suggestions, we actually listen. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, here now is my quote of the week. It's opposition leader Andrea Horvath, who, as we mentioned earlier, she kicked off her 2022 Ontario election campaign with some predictable criticism of the Ford government. But we also got a reminder that the NDP very much want to be seen as the better alternative to the PCs. And that means reminding people that if they want to ditch the Tories, they should not go back to the Liberals. Here's Andrea Horvath. And whatever Stephen Del Duca and his Liberals are now selling... They did the opposite when they had the chance. They had 15 years to help, but they chose politics instead. Freezing, cutting, and privatizing services we count on. Selling off Hydro One. Closing hundreds of schools. Bringing us hallway medicine. Neglecting long-term care homes and our loved ones living there. Making life harder for everyday people. The Liberals failed people then. The Conservatives are failing people now. 
That's NDP leader Andrea Horvath on her competition for, let's call it the center-left vote in the next election. And here is my quote of the week. And you'll remember we talked earlier about the fact that the NDP has now come out with some election ads. Three short ads, Andrea Horvath pieced a camera extolling the virtues of her own party and why they should be the choice next time. They also took out three pretty tough attack ads against Stephen Del Duca uh, saying, well, actually, you got to see them. You got to see the ads. They're pretty <laughs> clever, I got to say. They're, they're, you know, as attack ads go, they're pretty clever. Uh, but Stephen Del Duca yesterday morning, Monday morning, uh, held a news conference. And I used that opportunity to ask him um, about what he thought of the ads, which he said he had not seen, but he had heard all about. Andrea Horvath and Doug Ford can spend all of their time between now and June 2nd of next year obsessing and focusing on me if they want to. That's fine. That's part of this business. I will remain exclusively focused on the nearly 15 million people who call this province home and their future. And that's why I ran for leader. And that's why I'm running for premier. That's liberal leader Stephen Del Duca yesterday morning responding to the new NDP attack ads, not attacking the government of the day, but attacking the third place liberals. And that was episode 117 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, editing by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, let's wrap it up as we always do, quoting Larry Pakin, who says, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>